Open uh, your Bibles, if you will, today with me to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Uh, Over the last few weeks, I've been preaching through uh, some of the sections of the book of Acts. We don't plan to go through the entire book. But uh, I've been trying to, to say, here's what the church looked like in the beginning, when it was new, when it was exciting, when things were happening in a very good way, very positive way. And it's kind of like saying, okay, now look at Highland Park Baptist and look at this church and let's try to draw some parallels and learn what we can do as a church. Uh, As I've been here for the last uh, two months or so and and then before that on different occasions, people say, Pastor, our church needs help. We need to change. We need to do something. Uh, And lots of things have come about that have been negative over the last several years like it happens in every church. And, And I've tried to say there's not a quick fix I've tried to say there are some things that we should be considering. I don't know if you remember this, but I said in one sermon, it's not about what we do, it's about who we are. And so I've been trying to follow up by showing some of the things in the book of Acts that make a difference in the life of a church. Now today, we come to a text that, quite honestly to me, was puzzling at first. I'd preached on this text before, but as I prepared to to preach this morning's message, it was a bother to me. And the bother was, why in the world did God put this particular incident in the life of the early church right here in chapter 5 in the middle of everything going so good? Why did he do that? What's the importance of this? Now, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. And so there must be some reason God put this incident of this hypocrisy at this particular point in the Scripture. And so I want you to listen with me to what God says and see if we can discern not only what that meant for the church then, but what it means for the church today. Do like this if you agree. We need need to say, God, what did you have in mind and what did you have in mind for me? So follow with me as I read it out loud. Acts 4.32 and we'll go to chapter 5 verse 11. Now, the large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. Well, that's a big one right there. That shows the difference in our churches. But anyway, we'll go on. But instead, they had everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person's basic needs. Now, just a footnote, this crowd of people, many of whom had come from foreign countries to worship in Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. It was a great pilgrimage for many people to come to Passover, and that was an annual feast for some, but for many it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime. So on this occasion, many had come, heard the gospel, were saved and decided to stay because that's where they'd found such new life. But they stayed without their possessions, that is, their wealth. They stayed without their jobs. They st- and so there was a great need, and the church said, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to feed you. We're going to house you. We're going to clothe you. We're going to take care of you when you get sick. That's what God told us to do as a church, right? That's what happened. So continuing down in verse 36, Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Savira sold a piece of property. However, 
he held back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. Now, if this was a Baptist church, next thing you'd hear is they took up an offering. (laughs) That would motivate giving. But anyway, verse 6, the young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. There was an interval of about three hours, then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. And Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me if you will. Our Father, we know that you do all things well, and we believe that you put this particular passage in the Bible for a purpose. And let that purpose be revealed to each of us here today who have a heart to hear what the Spirit says to the church and who have a desire to be pleasing to God and to serve faithfully in his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think there's got to be at least one big obvious reason why this text is in this place in the Bible. Up to this point in the life of the early church, which in chapter-wise is a very short period of time, but in, in terms of actual space, several months perhaps had passed. And through this period of time, the Holy Spirit had been working so fervently in the people and in the community, and thousands of people were becoming saved, and Satan was doing everything he could to fight against it. On the outside, there were persecutions. Even, as we'll see later in the book of Acts, Paul was sent out to foreign countries, to cities, to find Christians and bring them back to persecute them. But none of this had great effect in terms of slowing down the life of the church. People were still getting saved. Blessings were still going forward. Miracles were still being performed. And so Satan here is starting a new tactic that he is still using to this day. Fighting from the outside didn't work, so you know what Satan did? He joined the church. And he's been a member in good standing ever since. And so here we find this tactic of instead of fighting the church from the outside, which historically has never worked. Different governors and kings and different officials have tried for centuries to stop the growth of the church, to kill the church, but to none effect. The church always survives and thrives when that's tried. But the thing that seems to have the biggest negative effect on any church is when there's discord and when there are problems on the inside of the church, indicating that at some point at least Satan has a foothold somewhere, and that's usually what causes local churches to fail. That's what usually 
quietens down the fervor for evangelism. That's the thing that kind of soft pedals the things that are right and puts our eyes and our attention on all those secondary issues that really don't matter in the first place. There's a reason why this text is here. There's a reason why this emphasis is on hypocrisy here in this church. I don't know if you know the name Adrian Rogers or not, but for many years he was a great leader among Southern Baptists and evangelical Christians around the world. And I was listening to an old sermon of his, and he was preaching about this same sin, except he called it hypocrisy. Anybody ever hear that one? <laughs> hypocrisy. Well, that's okay if you want to call it hypocrisy. You've got lowpocrisy as well. It's all kind of hypocrisy going around. But we're talking about hypocrisy today. Look at the details, if you will. If you're following in your sermon notes, look at the details of this attack inside the church. The first thing you need to know is that these two people were true believers in Jesus Christ. There's no question about their salvation. No question, but they had received Christ. Their life had been transformed. We don't know their background. They could have been strong Jewish followers. They could have been nominal Jewish followers. But by all accounts and purposes, they were Jewish people who heard the gospel, who trusted in Jesus, and so they came to this place where they realized people were giving and they're being recognized, and it was a good thing, and they said perhaps to themselves, let's do this as well. We, after all, want to do the right thing. What's the right thing? Well, let's give some money. People are destitute. People need food. People need places to stay. People need some kind of support. So let's do the right thing. Let's give some money. However, as you notice in number two of that sermon section, they did it by taking a shortcut. A shortcut. I'm all for shortcuts when you're going across country, aren't you? If I can find a shorter way to get someplace and I'm trying to get there fast, I'll take it. But that's not the right thing to do in terms of trying to serve God. Barnabas... As we saw in chapter 4, sold a piece of property, gave all the proceeds to the church, not as a way of bragging, not as a way of getting recognition, just as the right thing to do. And people perhaps just say, hey man, let's give it to Barnabas. Look what he's done. And other people were doing the same thing. And so perhaps in the hearts and minds of Ananias and Sapphira was this kind of thinking. In order to get recognition, in order to be somebody in the eyes of the people in our local church, let's do the same thing. And Ananias said, yes, but we don't have to give all the money to the church. We'll just let the people think we gave all the money to the church. And between me and you, we'll have some extra cash that we can do with as we please. And at the same time, we'll be helping out some of those poor people down at the church. And an additional bonus is people will think we're heroes because we're giving such a large amount. Folks, that's the definition of a spiritual shortcut. You know it's not good. You know it should be better. You know it should be different. But you do it anyway for some reason that's known to you and God. And that is perhaps just to look good in the eyes of people. That's known as hypocrisy or hypocrisy, however you want to call it. That was the sin. That was the problem in this particular case. Now, look at number three. Their sin was revealed by the Holy Spirit. Do you ever think you can sin and get by with it? I've tried. <laughs> Honestly, I've tried. But I know by experience, and you do too, that when you do something God has told you not to do, or you do something that you know by the Spirit's presence in your life is not to do, or you do something you know the God's Word says not to do, it's going to come out. 
And though other people may not know about it, you will not live at peace with it because if you're a believer, you cannot live at peace with sin. And so the Holy Spirit pointed out the sin. And of course, when they went to the church house or where they didn't really have a church house, obviously, but when they met to the place where the Christians were meeting, Peter came to Ananias and said, why have you done this thing? Why have you so dishonored God? And immediately he fell dead. Have you ever been in a church service where somebody died? I haven't either. I heard about a church in downtown Charleston some years ago, and they thought a man was having a heart attack. You know, he was just not moving much and didn't seem like he was breathing. They called EMS. They actually examined six men before they found the one that had actually... No, that's just a joke. It didn't really happen. Uh, we were in a church service one time, Libby and I. We went to this meeting up in a church in Georgetown. They were having revival, and we had heard it was a genuine, heaven-sent New Testament revival, so we went. We found a lot of chaos, and we discovered that before we got there that evening, a man had actually had a heart attack and died in the church. It wasn't because of his sin, it was because of his bad heart. But it would be a terrible thing. You go to church on Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Tuesday afternoon. This church met every day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And before you know it, here's this good old boy that everybody thought well of and everybody thought he was a good guy and he truly was a saved man, but he dropped dead because he had lied to the Holy Spirit. What would happen if everybody who sinned against the Holy Spirit in such a way dropped dead? It'd sure clean up the church, wouldn't it? <laughs> it might remove some of us from our midst along the way. Well, it wasn't enough that he died, but his wife came in and they asked her the same question. Did you sell a property for this much? Yes, yeah, what we got for it. You give it? Yes. Yeah, hey, be careful, lady, because the men who carried your husband out of right there at the door. And when she heard that, she dropped dead and they carried her out. Now, that's one way of cleansing the church. We don't read of anything else in Scripture, at least in the New Testament history of the church, that I'm aware of at least, where anything similar happened again. But we find many instances where the church has sin in the camp that prevents the church from moving forward with the mission God has given to the church. And so we must learn something about this sin of hypocrisy and what's it all about. Now, look at the fourth point in your first section of the sermon there. It says, proper church discipline was given. Do you believe in church discipline? Anybody? Y'all believe in church discipline? Yeah? We had a, a fellow in the church I used to be pastor of in Mount Pleasant. I can't tell you the name of the church, though. But uh, he just always seemed to enjoy raising a ruckus about something. And he didn't whisper it. He shouted it, literally. And so the deacons, uh, not the deacons, in our case over there, it was the elders decided, we can't let this go on. This is disturbing the church. So the elders met with the man and said, look, you can't keep doing this. Two or three of them met with him, and he didn't take it very kindly, and so it didn't stop. So over the next few weeks, the elders said, you know, this isn't stopping. We need to go see him again. They saw him again. And finally, the third time, they said to this old boy, I said, look, uh, we know that you have your right to your opinions as an American citizen. You can say whatever, wherever, but this is the church of God. This is the place we come to worship when we meet on Sundays and Wednesdays, and you can't act this way. And just get along and get by with it. And if you do this again, we're going to take you to the church conference and recommend that we remove your membership from the rolls and invite you not to come back anymore. 
He took it kind of seriously, and after a few weeks, he came and he apologized to the elders. Folks, that's church discipline. That's the way it ought to be. It's not with the goal to punish people. It's with the goal to reform conduct, attitudes. And these days, when you talk about church discipline for somebody who's getting out of line and, and raising a ruckus unnecessarily, they say, huh, I'll just go to the church down the street. They'll be glad to have me. Well, that may be the case. Once they learn about you, they'll be glad to send you back too, I'm sure. And so here was the problem, and here was the solution. So what's the bigger picture? In other words, second point of the sermon, what's wrong with a little hypocrisy? What's wrong with a little hypocrisy? I'll give you two incidents to look straight my point. I had an eventful day yesterday. I Got up last morning, my wife and I decided we'd put a little ceramic tile black backsplash behind our stove, and I've been cooking some and splashing stuff, and she didn't like it. She said, okay, we're going to get a backsplash you can wipe off. <laughs> so we looked around, picked out some tiles, and took it up to the cashier. We were going to buy these as samples. And wouldn't you know it, one of those squares did not have a price on it. That ever happened to you at Walmart? This was at Lowe's. And I became indignant. I thought, how dare they not have price on one of those squares of ceramic tiles for me? Don't they know that I'm a preacher? <laughs> so I grabbed that slap of tile and I walked back there to the department and I found one with a price tag on it and got it out and went back to the counter and slapped it down. So now check that one out for me. I did, honest. I'm glad none of you were there. <laughs> and then later it got to dawning on me you know that's what I'm preaching about Sunday <laughs> hypocrisy here I'm saying I'm a preacher and then I act that way in the public it shouldn't happen should it well it gets worse <laughs> Libby and I were going to dinner last night and we just happened to meet up with some people we didn't know were going to be around the area some friends of ours some past experiences and they said why don't you join us we'll have dinner together I said, that's great so we sat at the dinner table and caught up a little bit and I began to you know, talk about, well, I've been pastor of this church here at Highland Park before, and, you know, it's, it's done well since I've been there. And I just went on talking, and the more I realized talking to them, I was thinking, I'm just building myself up in their eyes for no good reason. I was being hypocritical in two different ways on the same day. Maybe just to give you a good illustration, but it's true. It happened. And I stand before you embarrassed that I didn't represent you well, and I was hypocritical in both of those accounts. Now, what is God saying to us today from this particular text? Glad you asked. Here are some things that are wrong with hypocrisy. First of all, important, hypocrisy is all about me looking good to others. That's what hypocrisy is all about. It's about me looking good to others. Listen, that's not my job. I'm supposed to look good for the sake of God's kingdom, not for the sake of my reputation. My job is not somehow to make sure people think the highest they can possibly think about me. It is to help them think the highest they can possibly think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, a lot of people are hypocrites because they want people to see them as somebody better than who they are. They want people to see them in some kind of an elevated fashion so that they'll think the best of them and they won't learn the little secrets about their life. Number two, what's wrong with hypocrisy? 
Hypocrisy turns away from the greater Christian ethic in Luke 9.23. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. It's a hypocrisy is not about denying yourself, it's about the opposite. Hypocrisy is about building up yourself. Hypocrisy is about making you feel good about who you think you are. Now, I'm not much on psychology, but I bet a good psychologist could have a field day with that one, right? And they could explain this in ways better than I can in terms of the psychological makeup of people. We all want to look good. We all want to be esteemed. We all want to have that reputation in front of other people that makes us into somebody. But what if the world thinks you're really somebody great, and down inside you know that's not the case? Where does that leave you? It's a problem. Number three, hypocrisy leads people to hide behind a false face and prevents real Christian fellowship. You know what we do oftentimes on Sunday morning when we come to church, and probably this has happened here today, and some of you may recognize yourself in this. We play a game that I've come to call verbal ping pong. Do you know how that game works? Verbal ping pong. You come to the church building and you greet somebody and you say, hey, good morning, good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. And we go our own way. We just kind of bounce that thing back and forth. We're really not concerned about how they feel and they're not really concerned about how we feel. We're just putting on a face so we don't have to tell them how we really think and what we really feel, right? And that game of verbal ping pong goes on all around. And you get in some social settings, one of the first rules is don't show them your weakness. They might exploit it, and they might not think as highly of you, and you might be blackballed from their presence and not be invited back to the party that you want to attend. Why do you want to attend the party? Everybody goes there who's somebody. And if you want to be seen as somebody, you have to be in that crowd. Hypocrisy is one of the great sins of the church that we don't talk about too much. But real Christian fellowship is not just being in the same airspace as another believer, whether you're eating coffee, uh, cookies and drinking coffee, or whether you're having a sandwich and a milkshake. Real Christian fellowship doesn't usually take place after the evening service in the CLC around the punch bowl and the cookies. Real Christian fellowship is when you have two fellows in the same ship. That's what fellowship is all about. People who have a lot in common, spiritually speaking, who are going the same place together at the same rate, and they're willing to be, hear this word, it's not in your notes, you need to write it down somewhere, willing to be vulnerable with each other. I've done a good bit of marriage counseling over my years of ministry. And one of the greatest problems we have in marriage today with especially a lot of younger couples that I've known is they're not willing to be vulnerable with each other. You see, when I'm vulnerable with my spouse, with my wife, I'm willing to let down my guard and let her see my true self, even my faults and my fears and my failures. And I can do that and be vulnerable in that because I know she loves me and cares for me and will not reject me regardless of what it is. And the same thing should be true in the church, shouldn't it? But we don't have sweet fellowship because we're not vulnerable with one another. We don't want to, here's, here it again, this is in Scripture, man. I don't have the verse in reference for you, but it's in there. Confess your faults one to another. 
Some translations even put it this way, confess your sins one to another. And so we don't have fellowship, genuine Christian fellowship, because we don't want people to think less of us. We're not willing to open ourselves up to people. Now, I'm not saying you need to get up in front of the whole church on Sunday morning and tell them everything you think and everything you've done. But there are times and places where one-on-one or two-on-two or small groups can say, I need your help. I want you to pray for me. Man, I'm really being tempted. I'm really being tempted to drink too much. I'm being tempted to lust after other women. I'm being tempted to look at the wrong things on the Internet. I'm just talking about men now. You ladies have your own list. I don't know what they might be. (laughs) But you see, real fellowship is based on not being a hypocrite. And when you still hold up that false face and you don't want anybody to know who you really are, what you're really thinking, you're hindering the fellowship of the church and it becomes more like a social club than it does the church of Jesus Christ. That'd be a good place to say amen. I have to roll my own sometimes. Number four, the biggest reason, the biggest reason for the problem with hypocrisy is that it is not compatible with the character of Jesus. Not compatible with who Jesus is. Could you imagine Jesus in the company of his 12 disciples being a hypocrite? Could you imagine Jesus being a hypocrite before the Sanhedrin or before the Pharisees, before the lawyers of his day, before the Romans? Not a bit. In fact, some of the Pharisees would like for Jesus to have been a little bit more hypocritical. Remember what they judged him on? Of course, they judged him on a lot of stuff, but one time they said, he spends so much time with those drunkards, he must be a drunkard himself. He spends so much time with those tax collectors, he must be a dirty, greedy person himself. They just kept on criticizing because Jesus was just Jesus. He loved people. He respected people. He went after people. He wasn't trying to hide behind anything. He was straightforward. Being willing to accept the criticisms from other people. That didn't bother him. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He wasn't afraid of what people thought because he was more concerned with doing the will of God. Now, let's look at the last part of the sermon today, and I always like to think this is the most important part. What is this new covenant character of the church that says hypocrisy is so bad? In John 13, we have some insight into the last hours of Jesus' life before he was crucified. Now, you know the first four books of the New Testament, we call it the Gospels. Basically, this is the biographies. These are the biographies of Jesus. None of them are in chronological order. Okay, just just understand that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels because they have many synopses that are similar. You can trace it even to the Greek language. And then John comes along and ruins it all because he starts way back at creation. Matthew and Luke only go back to the far as the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't mention it at all. But scholars agree that certain events took place on the night before Jesus was crucified that changed the course of the church and gave instructions for the church for years to come. One of those is an event that's very, today, looked upon as insignificant. It happens to be when Jesus, in John 13, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, got a basin, and began going around the room washing his disciples' feet. Do you remember that story? Well, remember this, in that day and time, people wore sandals, roads were dusty and dirty, very few paved roads, no sidewalks, sometimes it rained, there was mud. 
One of the first things you would do when you came into your house was to wash your feet. And if a family had any wealth at all, they'd usually have at least a hired servant or two. And the lowest hired servant would wash the feet. That was just a dirty job. Nobody wanted to do it. And so here's Jesus, the leader of this band for about three and a half years. He's shown them many miracles. He's given them wonderful teachings. He's tried to explain to them the meaning of the cross, though they still didn't get it. And here, just hours away from his death on a cross, he washes their feet. Huh? What's going on here, Jesus? What in the world are you trying to teach us? He comes around to Peter, and Peter said, Lord, don't wash my feet. I need to be washing your feet. Jesus said, look, if I'm not washing your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. Peter says, well, give me a bath. Give me the economy jumbo size. And Jesus said, no, you don't need a bath. You just need to be washed from time to time. So Jesus goes around the room on his feet, I mean on his knees. These guys are reclining at the tables they did in the Middle East in those days. And when he finishes, puts his robe back on, he says, just like I've washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. Now, some Christian groups have taken that to mean that Jesus established a third ordinance. An ordinance is something Jesus ordained. We have two, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Some would believe that Jesus also ordained that we would have a ritual of foot washing, and some churches do that. I don't think that's correct, actually. I believe that foot washing is not an ordinance that Jesus established, but foot washing is an example of humility. Nothing busts wide open, I know that's wrong English, but nothing bursts wide open hypocrisy more than humility. And so here's Jesus establishing a standard of behavior. Here's Jesus establishing an ideal. Hypocrisy doesn't prefer others to itself. It prefers its own way. But Christianity genuinely says, I care about your needs, I care about you more than I care about what people think about me. I don't have no concern about what people think about me, but it's not my main concern. In fact, it's not a very big concern at all. Now, number two, Jesus taught that the entire new covenant could be governed by two commandments. What are we talking about here? Well, Jesus had his top ten, remember, written on two tablets of stone. Somebody said Jesus, uh, Moses must have had sinus problems. He went up on Mount Sinai and got two tablets. <laughs> I had to get that in. That was the top ten. But do you know that in addition to the Ten Commandments, there are about 660 other laws that the Jews had to obey? governing everything from civil law to daily life and all kinds of different regulations about cleansing. And Jesus said you could take all those 660, add to it the top 10, and reduce it to two things. And you know what they are. When the lawyer asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He said to love God. How? With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he said quickly, and the second one is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, the whole law can be summed up in these two. Now, there's no room for hypocrisy when you love God with all your heart. There's no room in trying to make yourself look out to be somebody you're really not 
When you really love your neighbor as you love yourself, you don't want to pull the wool over your neighbor's eyes. Why would you do that if you love that person? You don't want to try to fool God. You can't. It doesn't work. He sees in the dark. He even sees you undercover when you think your face is clouded and he can't see you. And then here's the last thing in your notes. The message comes down to a question. It comes down to this. Do we live by what we want people to think of us? Or do we live by what God thinks of us? Which is it? Oh, by the way, a uh, little survey question right here. Does anybody like the way I'm dressed today? Some of the young ones do. I've already, I've already had some looks from some of you old guys. I have. And I'm not, I'm not setting you up, but some of you have already questioned, uh, why are you dressed like that, preacher? Now, I'll be honest with you. I feel much better in a suit when I'm preaching than I do dressed like this. I like suits. I just do. I don't know why I was made that way. But does it really matter to God if you dress in a suit or more casually? You know, uh, church I used to pastor, Mount Pleasant, whose name I can't mention, <laughs> if I was not the preacher and came in dressed like this, they would not ask me to be an usher. After all, preacher, we have standards and, and if you're not dressed in a suit and tie, you can't be an usher here. What's that all about? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to wear a suit to church. I like to wear suits to church, and I will again. I'm not sure when, but I will again. <laughs> but you see how we creep into artificial standards because we think more about what people think than about what God thinks. I know it works this way, and I'm not picking on you ladies, but Libby and I grew up in West Virginia, and we went away to seminary in New Orleans and came back to West Virginia for several years, and then we came here to Highland Park Church. Well, up in West Virginia, the standard in the culture is that women don't have to wear makeup when they go out except maybe going to dinner or to a show or something. And, and if you're a housewife in particular, and you're doing your work at home or whatever you're doing and you decide you need to go to the grocery store or you need to go over to the mall to do a little shopping, you don't put on makeup and dress up to do that. But I tell you what, we moved to South Carolina, we found there's a different standard. <laughs> My wife says, I need to put on a little makeup. I said, honey, put on as much as it takes. <laughs> just wh whatever it takes, just do the best you can. <laughs> Don't, don't fuss at her. She and I have been through this for a long time. We understand each other. But isn't it amazing how in different cultures, you're not considered socially normal and acceptable if you're not dressed in a certain way. Right? Some of you were brought up to think like this. You know, when you go to church, you're supposed to dress in your very best because God demands your very best. Really? Give me a chapter and a verse on that one, if you will. Give me a place in the Bible where it says you're supposed to dress your very best when you go to church because God expects your very best. That's not what the Bible teaches. You see, God is not more concerned about your outer appearance. He's concerned about your heart. Didn't we learn that when Samuel was picking the next king for Israel? When he went down to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and said, Jesse, God has chosen one of your sons to be the next king. Let him come before me. I'll pick him out. 
He brought the brightest, the strongest, the smartest, the oldest. Hey, this must be the one. He is handsome. He's big. He's strong. And God said, no, that's not the one. That's not the one, the next one, the next one, next one. Finally, there's, there's none left except David who's out watching the sheep because he's the runt of the litter. And he's the lowliest. And Jesse said, he's all, and Sammy said, bring him in. David comes in, not apparently the one, but God said, the Lord looks not as man looks. God looks on the heart. Man looks on the, what? Outer appearance. And sometimes in the church, we judge people by what they wear. How they act, not the content of their character. And sometimes we, we parents, we do a disservice to our children by passing that on to them. Well, you can't go to church dressed in that. Why not? I mean, if it's dirty and torn and, you know, no reason to fuss about that. I mean, make them wear decent clothes just to be decent people. But you see, there's so much in the church that we have established that are false standards that it must smell like a stench in the nostril of God. And the church cannot progress spiritually until it's willing to drop the false standards and accept people for who they are. And if you want to wear a suit and tie, bless you, brother, I'll probably be with you most of the time. But it's not about clothing. It's about the attitude that I want people to think I'm somebody special. And so I'll do this or I'll do that or whatever it may take for people to do. We had a lady in our church in another place, not Mount Pleasant. We were building a new sanctuary. It was really a nice building for worship. It was going to seat about 750 people. We were going to have some nice windows like these windows. And so we were trying to raise money to pay for the windows. We had the building pretty well financed, uh, had a loan plus a lot of giving. And so she made an appointment, came to my office and said, Pastor, I've been talking to some of my family. And, uh, and this lady wasn't worth a lot of money, but she could have brought, bought all the windows if she wanted to. And she said, my family and I would like to donate a window. And she handed me a piece of paper and said, and this is the dedication we want on the window. Well, see, we had already decided long ago that we weren't going to have any dedications on the pews or the windows or the organ or the piano or anything else. And I said, well, I understand that, that this is a nice thing you want to do for your family and kind of a legacy, but we're not going to have any designations on the windows or any of the other furniture of the church to recognize any particular person or family. She said, oh, so, well, we, we may not be able to do that or willing to do that. I said, that's fine. We're going to have windows anyway. And she left. And we got windows. Isn't it amazing what people will do so they will look good to others? Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts. And, and Lord, you know that all of us are guilty at some point. Cleanse us, O oh Lord. Set us free from this need to build ourselves up at the expense of others. Free us, Lord, from this, this attitude that we have to look good to God. That we might be free to serve and to live our lives as before you openly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.